You're listening to the golden age of aviation with Breitling. This is a brand new series from Monocle 24, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This was an era powered by the advances of the jet age, then later inspired by the advent of supersonic travel that saw civil aviation soar to new heights of efficiency, luxury and romance. And of course, some stunning commercial successes too. There were huge challenges along the way, and this programme tells all those stories, from technological developments and engineering innovators to those fearless individuals in boardrooms and cockpits who literally and metaphorically defined a new era of travel. We'll hear from the people that know the history, the personalities and the legends better than anyone else. We'll bring you unprecedented access as we meet those that flew and were flown, visit the airframe makers who helped to make the globe smaller and sit down to talk with the designers and marketers that sold the world the dream. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling and I'm Chloe Potter. We start with a couple of guests that are used to keeping their eyes trained on the skies. Here to paint a picture of the Golden Age for us and to share their own insights into this extraordinary period in history are two of Monocle's biggest aviation fans, contributing editor Tristan McAllister and our transport correspondent Gabriel Lee. Tristan and Gabriel, welcome. You're here to talk a little more about the meaning and the legacy of this golden age of aviation. Tristan, if I can start with you, why does it interest you so much? Well, I think the the thing about this particular era, and I, I think maybe to sort of set some expectations or at least set the tone, we should maybe define it as the era that came right after that turboprop or the propeller era post-World War II and really put us into the jet age. So we're talking about the the venerable airplanes like the 707 that Boeing built in the 1960s and 50s and 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 from then on we had this this huge sort of revolution in air travel because all the makers that made these planes, all the big players, the Lockheed Martins of the world, the Boeings, the McDonnell Douglas or the Douglas Aircraft Corps of the world, they shifted their their plant, their assembly lines from being for military purposes to being for commercial purposes. So that all of a sudden changed the dynamics of the industry. And it meant that we had airplanes that could take people great distances at far reduced cost to compared to earlier times. And I think that was really the catalyst that drove the golden era of, of of aviation, of commercial aviation, and that led to all the advances that we have today. So that sort of sets the scene for that era that you're talking about. Gabriel, turning to you, you don't have to be a veteran and actually have experienced this era to understand its impact, do you? I mean, you know, I I think sometimes I wish I had been able to experience it. But then again, you know, I was born in the early 80s. You know, I kind of feel like I caught the tail end of it. You know, that was still a lot of those planes that that started out the jet age were still flying then and beyond. And, you know, I grew up as a young child flying a lot, long distances. We lived in different countries. And so, 
you know, I, I feel like I, I got a bit of that, even though I missed the first couple of decades. And as I as I became interested in it, fascinated by it, how it all worked, and you know, the aviation side of it, the travel side of it, the, you name it, the airline branding side of it, you know, all of that, all of the ways that it's important, the way that it informs modern life, you know, that that became a big part of my life too. What does the golden age of aviation mean to you both? Is it a state of mind, a brand, a tech development? For me, it's about kind of a, a feeling of of optimism, of potential, of the desire to kind of push boundaries. And, and that, you know, applies both to what they were doing with technology, with, with you know, building jets that could fly farther and, and, you know, fly massive amounts of people and do it cheaply and, and all the things that Tristan was mentioning. But also, you know, just sort of reaching out to the world, being able to shrink the world, bring people together. You know, that's what it is for me. It's this feeling of, of optimism and, and possibilities and, and just sort of, you know, going for it, basically. As Gabriel said, it's something that I would have loved to have experienced. You know, what I, I think about was that increased level of service. I think about the, in some ways, it was still kind of out of reach with a lot of the masses. So I think it was a little bit more, I think it was definitely something that was more special and something that was perhaps a little more aspirational than it is today. You didn't have the low cost carriers. You you know, you really had a focus on service and product and differentiation. You know, the airlines really stood out. They stood out based on their advertising campaigns. They stood out based on the seats that they put you in. They stood out based on the lounges that they put on board their jets, the flight attendant uniforms, the the you know the the style of service, the service delivery, your experience at the airport, all of those things were different. I think, you know, if you look at that era, many of the the celebrated architectural transport marvels of mid-century of the mid-century western world have to do with with air transport and travel so tristan is there a design or a look or perhaps a single piece of technology that really sums up the golden age of aviation for you yeah i think i sort of i I mentioned it a minute ago but the way it's being laid out to me and the way i've always thought of it and you know i've just spent some time with with boeing and their their chief historian and archivist here in in Washington state. And the way he lays it out is that it really has to do with the jet engine. The jet engine changed everything. I mean, there was certainly glamorous travel before that, but I think what what happened with the jet engine was that it made travel smoother. It made it quieter on board the jet. I think it made it faster. It brought more of this to the masses. So it really accelerated how the world moved into trusting aviation. And we'll get into more of that in this series. You know, there's some really interesting anecdotes that have to do with even some of the ad campaigns that some of these manufacturers put out to get people to trust in the idea of a jet versus a a propeller because it was something new. And there were certainly hiccups with some early jets in terms of safety and issues with operations. So that kind of put the world on hold and made everyone question the idea of whether or not a jet was the right thing to use. But some of the ways that these these manufacturers put jets into the public eye and some of the ad campaigns they launched around jets really thrust the world's understanding into the jet age, into the golden era of aviation. And so I think to answer your question, it really has to do with the jet engine. Do you think such a period could ever happen again? Have we become too fearful or, or lacking in ambition to do this, do you think? You know, I think there are plenty of people out there with, with a lot of ambition. I think the, the major manufacturers, you might say they've gotten kind of comfortable with the designs that they've perfected over the years. I mean, you know, we talk about some of these models, they're still 
flying around the you know the sixth or seventh or eighth variant of these models and you know with each one they've kind of done these incremental efficiency gains right they've they've improved the engines they've you know subtly improved the aerodynamics new shapes of winglets to reduce drag and fuel burn and you know i think they've gotten into this point where i mean they've found kind of the perfect mix of what a plane should look and, and act like and and they can kind of only get so far now with just chipping away at making it a little bit more cheap to operate and a little bit more environmentally friendly. But I think there are a lot of people out there, you know, smaller outfits and, and you know, up and comers that, that are trying to innovate in this sphere. And there are a lot of new ideas out there. And of course, there's a lot of room for technology to, to go. I mean, we have, a, we have a sort of increasingly urgent need for alternative fuels, electric aircraft. These are not coming around the corner in the next few years. You know, people are still looking at supersonic, bringing that back. All of it remains somewhat theoretical, but there are people really working on this stuff. So I think to, to, to say that, that everyone has gotten too conservative, too careful, I, I think that would be a misstatement. Finally, Tristan, we're speaking to you in Seattle. Could you talk a bit about how and why we're telling this story and who else we're going to meet during the series? Well, the, the, the way they put it here, is, and they have for years, I've heard this many times, that that Seattle is essentially the Detroit of commercial aviation. And in many ways, that's true. Prior to Airbus even existing, Boeing was here. Boeing came about in the early 1900s, and it was really something that was initially founded as a, a boat and seaplane manufacturer. I mean, of course, there were sort of fits and starts and trying to figure out where it fit into the market. And even at times, because the market got so soft in terms of what was demanded of Boeing, they made furniture. So, you know, this place in so many ways is so intertwined with the company Boeing and not just Boeing, but the commercial and also the military aerospace world. So that's why we're here. I, I think some of the characters we'll talk to, they're across the board from historians who work closely with Boeing or at Boeing to document all of the achievements of not just the company, but also all of the companies that it's acquired over the years. So that's why we're here exploring some of its past, talking to some characters, talking to also some of the outfits that have grown out of the innovation that Boeing required, like Teague. They're an interiors firm that make some of the, the best known airline interiors in the world. They're based here in the Puget Sound or the Seattle area. We'll be speaking to them. And also some other people, former airline executives, and those certain people who have traveled around the world, traveled on almost every airline you can imagine, in every condition you can imagine. They've seen the service. They've seen the product anywhere. And those people all are attracted to this area because there's such a big industry here. There's such a big community for it. We're tapping into that. We're talking to those voices and painting, I think, what will be a really interesting, dynamic, colorful picture of not just the golden age of aviation, but just what came before and what will come after. Tristan McAllister and Gabriel Lee, thanks for joining us. Now, if a single airline embodies the glamour of mid-century commercial aviation, it's Pan American World Airways, widely known as Pan Am. During the 1960s and early 1970s, the airline enjoyed a prestigious heyday as the largest international carrier in the US. Its success was fueled in part by a savvy marketing effort led by a New York design firm. Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan reports. A farmer works a verdant rice terrace. A skier becomes airborne, leaving behind a cloud of powdery snow. 
a woman walks along the golden shoreline of a seemingly endless beach. Each of these alluring images is interrupted by only two or three superimposed words. There's the name of the exotic locale, Bali, Austria or Panama as the case may be. And there's the abbreviated title of the airline who wants to fly you there, Pan Am. Posters were created in 1971 by the design firm Shemayev and Geismar. They're selling vacation destinations, but their minimalist design is also selling a worldly sophistication that the jet age had only recently put within the grasp of the general public. Tom Geismar and Ivan Shemayev founded their design firm in 1957. Now called Shemayev and Geismar and Aviv, the company's offices are in Manhattan, where I recently spoke to Tom Geismar. In the late 60s, we were asked to look at the whole way they promoted themselves, the way they identified their sales showrooms around the cities, uh, you know, the ticket offices and, and other things. And one of the things we first noticed was that, for example, in the ticket offices, they, they would say Pan American World Airways in this kind of stretched lettering, which was their name, but it was a, a lot of words and a lot of signs, and yet everyone called them Pan Am. So we thought, first of all, why not just say Pan Am? Everyone knows what it is. And in fact, it's so well known, we felt you could put it in any typeface if you had a cap P and a cap A and ran it together as one word with the two capitals. That would read clearly to people as Pan Am. So we chose Helvetica at the time, kind of a new thing as a typeface. And then one of the things that I guess was one of their great points of pride was they were having, had bought the first 747s. Chances are you've heard about the plane with a spiral staircase in first class. The plane with the two wide aisles and the three widescreen movies and the eight-foot ceilings and economy. And chances are you've wondered, who's going to get this incredible bird off the ground? Now you know. Pan Am will bring you the world's first 747. Pan Am will bring you... So we did all the, the menus, for example, for the 747s, for all the... In Initial flights, we worked with their uh, designer on the uniforms for the flight attendants, um, designed special scarves and other things, which were very, you know, attractive kind of, uh, kind of materials because it was very special. And, of course, air travel at that time was also quite different. And Pan Am was known for the, the highest class of travel and attention to passengers and so on. What was different about commercial air travel and the way the general public thought about it at that time compared to now? I think it was very romanticized and, and the travel posters and so on romanticized you know, where you might go. And of course, people were much less familiar with all these other places than they are today. So uh, there, there was 
kind of a boom, I guess, of international travel. Part of, the, of what we were trying to do is, is to take a different look, for example, at travel posters, how you could do them where they're not kind of corny design, but very attractive. And we made a, uh, we had an idea of doing a whole series of posters, I guess it was a season's posters, where we made a deal with Magnum Photographers Group to use photos from their various photographers and let the photographs really be the dominant thing and treat the type very delicately. So again, making the destination the focus of the, uh, of the poster. Those posters have sort of become famous. They're in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art now and uh, big collector's items. Unfortunately, we don't have any <laughs> ourselves. Um, I wish we did. That combination of the kind of really beautiful Magnum Agency photographs and the, uh, the Helvetica very clean font that you've mentioned, I think make the posters look remarkably contemporary. And they actually remind me of the kind of images that maybe a travel lifestyle influencer or brand might post on Instagram today. No, I think that's it. I mean, that brings up a funny point because we've always felt in design terms to try to do what is simple, direct, not really influenced by what is the current fashion, but what tells a story or what acts as a significant identifier and is more timeless and, and not trendy. So a lot of the logos and things we've done are still around from you know many, many years ago and decades ago. Because we took that attitude, because we had no idea there would be apps and things like that as, as we now have, but they work very well in that context. And I think it's the same with the posters and so on, the, this kind of very simple, direct, quite beautiful uh, handling and without a lot of other extraneous uh, elements to it is very much of the time right now. Finally, I just want to kind of compare and contrast your work for Pan Am, uh, these kind of idealised, beautiful shots of exotic foreign destinations, with the kind of adverts for airways that I see now in metro stations or on the side of buses or whatever, which tend to focus less on the destination and the kind of exoticization of different places, far-flung places, and more on, for example, luxury cabin features or price point, or just the quantity of destinations flown to rather than the destinations themselves. Would you approach designing a campaign for an airline differently now, and what factors would you take into account? Well, in many ways, I think these posters could still work, but I, I think the big difference is that today, because of the internet, because of television, which, again, was kind of a much more minor thing at that time. People are so much more visually aware and exposed to so much more. We see these countries aren't so mysterious as they were 50 years ago, these destinations. So the romance of the destination, I think it's still a factor, but then you have to go beyond that, or I guess they feel today that you have to go beyond that uh, to distinguish yourself from many other ways of, uh, of getting there. Going great. 
That was Tom Geismer speaking with Monocle reporter Henry Rees Sheridan. Throughout this series, we'll be hearing from all sorts of people involved with this golden era of aviation, from the engineers to the cabin crew. Today, we're in the cockpit to meet a couple of pilots who flew into one of the most notorious airports in the world, Kai Tak. Kai Tak was the international airport of Hong Kong from 1925 until 1998. Located on the east of Kowloon Bay and surrounded by city, mountains and a harbour, its legendary status came from the swooping turn a pilot would have to make at low altitude past city tower blocks to land. This would allow passengers to see straight into the apartments of Hong Kong residents as they arrived in the city and presumably was a rather terrifying prospect for new inhabitants to the area too. This thrilling roller coaster ride into town was both a tricky and a favourite manoeuvre for many pilots who regularly landed in Hong Kong. Two of those are Captain Peter Bissell and General Manager of Operations Mark Hoey, both of whom flew for Cathay Pacific. First, we hear from Mark. The first time I was flying the aircraft back into Kai Tak was uh, we came in from Canton, as it was called in those days. It's now become Guangzhou. It's always with nervous and trepidation your first time you came down, looked at the checkerboard, turned right and landed Kai Tak. But it was also a huge uh, fulfilment of a career ambition to be able to achieve it, tinged with excitement. But I think that particular day, just the complete emotion and concentration you know you, you just don't really appreciate what you've actually just achieved ladies and gentlemen welcome to you hear about it you see it in magazine covers but until you actually looked out the windows basically effectively looking into high-rise apartments as you came into land um, you didn't really appreciate it it was a very small runway narrow runway you know nestled on the corner of Hong Kong Harbour pointed out through the Limon Gap there was a certain uniqueness. It was just had a, a sort of a different sort of beauty about it that was really, really unique to Hong Kong. Many, many stories about it. And that Kai Tak grew and grew until it reached capacity and then we eventually had to change. And it was very busy, very challenging, but the hustle and bustle around the airport as well, it was right in the middle of the city. It was just completely different to anything else you would expect. If you ever had friends arriving in Hong Kong, you'd always say to them, get a seat on the right-hand side, because the right-hand side was the most spectacular. They, one of the things that we used to do a lot in the days before 9-11 is we'd, you know, we'd have people in the flight deck. It was even in the frequent flyer program that you could accrue enough points to actually request to sit on the flight deck for landing. We always flew with the flight deck door open. But it's interesting because I spoke to a number of people who, who, uh, who afterwards you'd be having a drink somewhere or whatever and they'd talk about their experience, you know. And they would always say, they would say in the early part of the descent, because you know descent takes about half an hour, and the early part of the descent, there's not a lot going on. And it, the workload, the intensity really builds up below 10,000 feet. And people would often say to me, it was interesting watching you guys because we were chatting away, and then we got down to 10,000 feet, and suddenly you were all concentrating on what you were doing. And that was true, you couldn't really have a conversation, apart from operational conversation, below 10,000 feet, because you were so concentrating on the approach. And people would often say they could feel that, you could feel that, that, uh, that tension 
I mean, sitting in a flight deck, it's like anything that you don't normally see, whether you sit in the front of a train or the bridge of a ship, these are places where public don't normally go. So it is fascinating, no matter where you are. But aeroplanes, I think, still have that magic about them. You know, there are so many dials and lights. You know, there's, there's so much going on in an aeroplane. I think they still look pretty exciting places to be. You add to that, you know, an approach like Kitech, you know, and it you know, adds a different level to it, I think. You're always focused on learning, but no, as, as you became more accustomed to it, it took on a completely different perspective. As you came down, the way Cathay approached the, the airport was a little bit different. We had some local knowledge. We could see Lion Rock off to the left. There was a race course. So we, we positioned ourselves. We, we cheated a little bit. We went a little bit off to the left. It gave us a, a sort of a, a longer sweeping turn to approach in through the buildings onto Kai Tak. Now we became intimately aware of uh, flying into Kai Tak. I think Kai Tak was just dynamic. When uh, you're referring to parking your car, which is something that every time you park between two vehicles, it's going to be pretty much the same. Every time you came to Kai Tak, it was going to be a little bit different. Uh, the wind directions, the turbulence, just the clouds swirling around the mountains gave completely different illusions. And uh, it was sort of the eroticism or the eroticism of uh, the whole Far East became part of coming to Kai Tak, and which was the mystique of doing it. It was completely different. So every single time you flew into Kai Tak, it was different. And that was what was unique about it. The great thing about Kai Tak was that um, being a city airport, the moment you got through the airport, you were, in, you were in Hong Kong. You know, there were street vendors, there was taxis, there was noise, there was buses, there was, you know, uh, it was just straight full on as soon as you walked out. And the airfield, as you know, in order to accommodate the parking, all the parking uh, areas went all the way you know, up into Kuntong and uh, um, you know there were bridges across the Nulla to make connect taxiways with the runway. It really was, in the end, it was absolutely impossible to continue to operate out of there because it had simply become too small. And so it, it was challenging, but but never felt frightened. In fact, I always thought, thought it was a great challenge. You know, it was an approach that if you, you, you anticipated it and you managed it, and if you got a really nice landing off it as well in the right place, without having to stomp on the brakes, and you know, you just felt that you'd, you, know, you were doing a job. You know, a lot of these, a lot of airfields now, we talked to one about flying and uh, how flying is managing machines. But those curved approaches, uh, Kitech and still in New York, this is where people still actually fly aeroplanes, you know. There's nowhere in the world like Kai Tak. Kai Tak was, as I said, it was our home port. We loved it, but it was always a challenge. And I think from a piloting perspective, that's the best part about it. Um, it was unique and it's never going to be repeated again today. On this programme, we're interested in all aspects of aviation design, from the shape of a 747 all the way down to the cup served with your in-flight meal. And it's that small detail that we're going to look at now. Masako Sone is a former GK design employee who works on sofas, cabinets, kitchenware and sewing machines. She has a rare collection of more than 200 airline cups from the 1960s, a collection that she believes goes beyond airline branding to the importance a nation places on design. Monocle's Kenji Hall meets her in Tokyo. 
Masako Sone was in her mid-twenties when she first flew to Finland. This was 1963, and Sone was an industrial designer from Japan. She and her husband, also a designer, had just spent a year and nine months studying in the U.S. She at the Cranbrook Academy of Art, he at the Illinois Institute of Technology. They were on a Finnair flight heading to Helsinki. It was to be one of 20 cities they would visit before arriving back in Tokyo. Sonia doesn't remember much about that flight. The interior, her meal, her seat, all of those details have long since faded. But there is one thing that stayed with her, the plastic cup on the in-flight meal tray. She took it home with her. When this cup came, I was totally surprised. I'd only ever seen ordinary crockery. Its design felt so fresh. Its shape was really interesting. I don't really remember what I ate, but I was completely bowled over by this cup. I turned it over and read on the bottom, Finair, and designed by Tapio Workala. Workala was a very well-known Finnish designer. I was so surprised. Here I was, an industrial designer, and I was in awe of a country where a designer's work extended to the cup on a plane. The cup, the color of ivory, has a wide, round rim that curves to a small base. Instead of a loop, the handle resembles Darth Vader's three-winged Imperial shuttle from Star Wars. Your thumb and index and middle fingers are meant to fit very comfortably around it. This was at a time when plastic was a novelty item. Designers were using plastic to create unique forms that weren't possible before. For Sone, who worked for Japan's GK design group for a half century, the Finnair Cup opened her eyes to the possibilities of design. Well, after that, anywhere I went around the world, I explained to the cabin crew that I was a designer and wanted a cup from the in-flight tray. I didn't just want to steal it. I didn't want people to think that that's how we Japanese were. So I'd explained to the flight attendant that I was a designer and that I wanted to take home the cup. And they would say, sure, go ahead. I think it might have also been because I was young. After that, I figured that any airline would probably let me take one home. Nearly all of Sunny's more than 200 cups come from economy class meal trays. They're lightweight and stackable, and they won't tip over when a plane encounters turbulence. Over decades, she collected them from dozens of airlines, some that no longer exist. A ceramic cup from Swiss Air, a triangular lime and white plastic cup from TWA, an origami-like cup with a square base and an oval rim from Air France, along with others from Lufthansa, British Overseas Airways Corporation, Air India, Korean Air, Garuda Airlines, Japan Airlines, Philippine Airlines, Scandinavian Airlines, Aido Mexico, and the list goes on. Friends who heard about her collection would occasionally send her theirs. On a trip to the then Soviet Union aboard Aeroflot, she wanted to take home the clear amber plastic cup with a vertical grooved slat for a handle. Here's how she tells it. It had Aeroflot written on the bottom. I wanted it really badly. I asked the flight attendant, a huge woman, can I just keep one? And she said, absolutely not. This is government property. I really wanted it. So when the lights went dark and the flight attendants were cleaning up, I decided to take this one. Airplane cups were made to be functional, but Sone saw something else in them. Cup design gave her a glimpse into a country's culture. She noticed that the names of designers were almost always on cups from European airlines. It reveals a lot about a country, how seriously a country takes the creation of beautiful things, a country's history of art has something to do with this. 
So here the designer feels a sense of responsibility. In the US and Japan, it's more about mass-producing something that's functional and cheap. Over the years, economy class in-flight meal cups became a commodity. It's now hard to tell them apart, and that saddens Sone. Every company has its branding. Nowadays, airlines distinguish themselves by their plane's painted exterior, but it's the crockery that gives people a sense of closeness to an airline's brand. Each cup has its own story. I'm a designer who happens to take notice. I'm sure other people have noticed things on their own. There's something inventive about each one of these cups. They're a great way of winning over customers. As for her encounter with that first Finnair cup designed by Tapio Wirkala, it made a lasting impression. I see Finland as the kind of country that would make something this beautiful. It's not about the money spent, it reflects how they surround themselves in every aspect of their daily lives with things that are beautiful and easy to use. I suppose you find that all the way through Scandinavia, but in my mind, Finland ranks above all other countries. From Monocle in Tokyo, I'm Kenji Hall. That brings us to the end of part one of our new series, The Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel in the 50s, 60s and 70s. To find out more about the programme, you can head to monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Tom Edwards and Holly Fisher and I'm Chloe Potter. Join us again for our second episode in two weeks' time. Until then, wherever you are and wherever you're headed, bon voyage. <laughs>